This morning's message is a passion, a passion for the presence of God. We're continuing our sermon series, God's Story, Our Story, our survey through the Word of God by looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. 2 Samuel chapter 6, 1 through 16. It's the story of David, who is now the king. Remember last week, we saw David, the shepherd boy from Bethlehem, who slays the giant. Now David, fast forward, is the king of Israel, and he is the, doing the first order of business as the new king. He is returning the ark to the rightful place, its rightful home in Jerusalem. The prophet Samuel is the kingmaker. He anoints Saul as the first king, and he anoints David as the first king. David, last week, we saw killed Goliath, and Saul, the king, becomes envious and tries to kill David six times, so David has to flee. But here in 2 Samuel, Samuel is dead, Saul is dead, and David has now the king of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, which we learned about back in Exodus, which was a four by two by two piece of furniture that resided in the Holy of Holies. It represented the real tangible presence of God for the people of God and the nation of Israel. That ark had been laying dormant for years. Saul paid no attention to the ark of the covenant and it was on the edge of the nation of Israel and it had laid dormant. He had no regard for the presence of God. And so David is returning it back to Jerusalem. Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. You remember the, the box, the ark of the covenant, there were two cherubim and in the center was the mercy seat, the mercy seat, and that's where they believe the presence of God resided, on the mercy seat. And they carried, verse three, the ark of God on a, on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Uzzah and Ahio. And the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, 
He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And on this Lord's day, the grass withers And the flower continues to fade, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. If I was to ask you this morning, what defines a successful life, what would you say? If you were to fast forward to the end of your life and you say, my life was marked by by one thing, my life was marked by the one thing that I gave all of my energy and all my attention and all my focus to, what would that one thing be? Now, you might say one thing, but your time, talent, and treasure, the way you spend your time and your talent and your treasure, might actually reflect another. For David here, he finally acquires the kingdom. And you would think for David, the kingdom of God would be the thing. You would think the kingdom, with all of its power, with all of its wealth, with all of this, this, its prestige, would be the one thing he says, I am going to devote the rest of my life to this. This is my passion, the kingdom, the power, the prestige. But it's not. The first order of business for this newly appointed king was not his kingdom, but the kingdom of God. The first order of business for this king was to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem because he understood what the ark of God represented. It represented the real, tangible presence of God. It represented the favor of God upon the people of God. And David is making a statement that this kingdom and my life, there is one passion, and it is the presence of God above anything else. What can we learn about David's passion here in this passage? The first thing I want you to see concerning the passion for God's presence is I want you to see in this passage the priority of God's presence. The priority of God's presence. In verses one through four, we see David, what he does first order of business of bringing the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem. Now the ark is just, as I said, four by two by two. It required four people to carry it. How many people are listed here? 30,000. Do you see the priority that David is putting upon the ark of God, the presence of God returning to Jerusalem? 30,000 men. You see, what David is saying by making this his first order of business is he's saying the presence of God has been marginalized in Israel. It has been put to the side. And David is making a bold statement. Under my kingdom and my reign, the presence of God will be supreme. It will be central. I am returning the presence of God to the center of government, to the center of culture, to the center of society. My kingdom will prioritize one thing. It is the very presence of God. The center of government, the center of culture, the center of the society will be marked by the presence of God. Doesn't sound like a bad idea, does it? And this is the mark that David wants to make, that God is returning. God is returning to the center of it all. Now, what typically happens when a king is crowned? 
or when a queen is crowned. There is pomp and circumstance for days, if not weeks. And you expect for King David, for there to be a blowout party celebrating his rising to the kingdom of the people of God and rising to the throne, but not for David. David marching in with 30,000 men, carrying the ark of the Lord, is signaling to his people that you have come to celebrate me reigning as the king, but I am here to say there is a true king of kings and lord of lords, and it's his throne that I am bringing into Jerusalem today. My kingdom will be marked by the kingdom of God, and there is one passion that this king has. Most kings and most leaders have a passion for one thing. It is for themselves. But David wants to make the statement right off the bat that my passion, my singular focus is a passion for the true king of kings. This is who our allegiance is to alone. The king of kings and lord of lords who reigns above. We see here the priority of God's presence. But the second thing, that we see here in 2 Samuel 6 is the problem with God's presence. Right after we see the priority of God's presence, David marching the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, we see the problem with it. In verse 7, we read that the ark of the covenant, which was supposed to be carried with two wooden poles because nobody dared to touch the ark of the covenant because it represented the real presence of God. It was holy But instead, what did they do? They put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And we read in verse 7 that the ox stumbles. And the Ark of the Covenant is falling into the dirt. And a man by the name of Uzzah reaches out for the Ark and he grabs it. And what happens? God strikes him down. Now to the modern reader, when we read passages like this, we go, this is why I don't like the Bible. This is why I don't like stories like this, because this seems so barbaric. This just seems totally irrational. I mean, after all, Uzzah had good intentions. He had good motivations. He didn't follow all the rules, and, and he's just trying to help, help out here, reaching for the Ark of the Covenant before it falls in the dirt and God strikes him dead. But that's not the problem. You see, Uzzah's problem was not that he had good intentions and he just didn't follow the rules. That's not what we believe concerning the Bible. What we believe concerning the Bible is that Uzzah, apart from the grace of God, never has good intentions or motivations. You see, what we believe concerning humanity is that we all stand condemned. And Uzzah's problem was not that he had good intentions and just didn't follow the rules. It's that in that moment, he failed to believe and embrace that God was truly that holy and that he was truly that depraved. In that moment, he actually believed that there was some bit of self-righteousness in him that would allow him to tangibly hold the Ark of the Covenant and hold the presence of a holy God. In that moment, he was expressing that he was righteous, righteous enough to handle the holiness of God. And what what I love about this story is it is a wake-up call. It is a wake-up call to a newly appointed king and to a nation and ultimately to us that last week we saw God condemn who? The pagan, 
But here, we see God condemn the religious. You see, Uzzah thought with his religiosity, with his self-righteousness, that he actually qualified himself to handle the holiness of God. And what God wants to make it clear in his word is that all stand condemned, the pagan and the religious, the Gentile, Goliath, and the Jew, all stand condemned before God. It is the equal playing field when it concerns our condemnation before God. You see, what keeps us out of heaven is not our attempts to be religious and falling short of that. What keeps us out of heaven is our sin and our depravity. And that is the message, the object lesson here with Uzzah. He is a man that failed to believe that he is totally depraved before a holy God. And he cannot stand. And listen to me, your inability to see your corruption is both toxic and lethal. If we do not first understand that we stand condemned before a holy God because of our sin, we will never understand the grace of God and the magnitude of his love for us. We stand like Uzzah condemned. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many good works we try to perform, we stand condemned, both the pagan and the religious. No amount of religiosity could ever save Uzzah, and it could never save you. Uzzah dying there is a wake-up call to a king and a wake-up call to a nation and ultimately to us that religion and self-righteousness will kill you. That is the problem with the presence of God. Now let's all go home. No. Where's the good news? Where is the hope then for the presence of God? You see, we've seen in this passage the priority of the presence and the problem with the presence. But lastly, we see, and thank God that the story doesn't end there, we do see the hope for God's presence You see, the bad news means that there's going to be good news. And it's in verse 10 that David asked the question that you might be asking this morning, whether you're here or watching online. David asked the question in verse 10, who can stand? Who can receive the ark of the Lord? If Uzzah can't, then surely I can't. And David says, away with it. Because who can stand in the presence of God? But later he finds out that there is a way in which we can experience the presence of God. And the answer is in verse 13. What does David do? In verse 13 it says, when the ark of the Lord had gone just six steps, David sacrifices an animal, two animals. What David understands is that although on his own accord and by his own efforts he could never stand in the presence of God, he understands that it would be by the sacrifice of an innocent animal and the sacrifice of an innocent animal alone that it would allow him to experience the presence of God. It would be the sacrifice of another. And isn't it amazing, in one object lesson of the ark, We both see, on the one hand, our condemnation, but on the other hand, we see how we will be absolved. It is through sacrifice, and not through our sacrifice, but the sacrifice of another. But it would be centuries later that God would pull off the greatest object lesson of all, 
Because it would be at the cross of Jesus Christ that the cross would announce to the world that you are so sinful and so corrupt that you cannot save yourself. But on the other hand, so loved and so adored that God would actually be willing to send his son to die in your place. You see, the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel put to death a sinful man, but saved a king. But it would be on the cross that the king would take the place of sinful people like you and me. And the sinful, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, in that king who dies on the cross, can have the promise of life and life to the full, both now and forever. This is the hope that we have and the only hope that we have to encounter the presence and the favor of God, the great sacrifice of our king. And what was the response of David? When David understood that through the sacrifice of another, he could encounter the presence and the favor of God, what was his response? In verse 14, it says, when David's eyes were opened and the coin dropped and the light went off, what did David do? In light of God's amazing grace on his behalf, in verse 14, it says, he danced before the Lord. You see, that's what happens when we understand the magnitude of what God has done on our behalf for sinful people like you and me, we can't help but dance. But you see, the religious don't dance because they can't hear the music. Because the religious and the self-righteous will never dance because they will never have the joy that they think they deserve because they can never fully earn the favor, and the approval of God. So the religious and the self-righteous, there is no dancing. But for those that understand that on the basis of God's unmerited grace on their behalf, they can't help but dance. And dance for joy and to have a passion for the presence of God. It would be several years later that this King David when writing the Psalms, in Psalm 27 in particular, would say this, and granted, this was a man who had seen it all. He had the kingdom, he had the power, he had laid his eyes on the most beautiful things this side of heaven, and this is what he said in the end. Verse 4 of Psalm 27, it was our call to worship this morning, this one thing I have asked the Lord, and one thing I seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and do what? And gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This became for David his one single passion, the presence of God, because he understood it was the one thing he needed and it was the one thing this world could never offer, the cross which offers full forgiveness and full acceptance on the basis of another. To be fully known and fully loved, nothing in the world can promise that. And that became the singular passion for David. And that's why Paul in the New Testament would later write, if you're going to boast, boast only in the cross. The one passion, one desire. Oh, how I long for a church that has one single 
passion, the kingdom of God above anything else, that my life and my family and my wealth and my influence and my affluence and my career is marked by one thing, and it is the kingdom of God, one desire, one passion. Jesus himself said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? The audacity to think we will stand before God one day and say, God, I acquired businesses and wealth and power and prestige, but I lost my soul. We are passionate about a lot of things. Our sports teams and our children and our career. There are a lot of things we are passionate about and God calls us this day in light of his great mercy for us and he says one passion, one singular focus. There is one way and only one way in which you will stand before God one day and not lose your soul. And it is for those who surrender their lives to Christ so that you in fact can save it. And I want to ask you today, If you have never come to the place in your life where you have surrendered your life to God on the basis of the mercy of Jesus Christ, today is the day. Today is the day where you say, my life belongs to you. That I surrender my life to you, Jesus, because you first surrendered your life to me. I now have a singular focus and passion in life because, God, you came down in the person of Jesus Christ and you had a singular focus on the cross, and that was to save my soul. Today is the day, the day of surrender, one passion, one desire for the presence of God. A pastor was taking his congregation on a tour of the Holy Land. And ironically, their tour guide's name was Aaron, named after the high priest in the Bible, the one that gives us the benediction that we recite every Sunday, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. He was named after the high priest. And at the end of the tour, the pastor went over to the tour guide, Aaron, and he put his hands upon him and he looked at him in the eyes And he said, I don't know what you believe, but I want you to know, I pray this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And with that, Aaron began to weep and cry. And he says, my father prays that over me every Sabbath. Oh, how I long for it to be true. Brothers and sisters, When we experience the presence and the favor of God unconditionally, it'll make you cry or dance. Either one will do.